opportunities, he's writing Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians while he is asking them to pray for him. Um, and Paul is writing these letters with a clear understanding that the gospel going to the world is going out from his house arrest. Um, let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look at this letter that was intended one day to be in Mendota, Illinois, whether Paul knew that or not. It is the gospel and the plan of you, Father, that your son would be head of the church and that he would be in us, we would be in him, and everything changes when that happens. Help us to understand it more clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read up to where we left off. Um, beginning in verse 3, where Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I just addressed in praying over this message. Um, Paul is praising the Father, understanding he's the orchestrator of this plan, and he is praising him, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So those come down to us through Christ from God the Father. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So he gives us the, the plan in a, in a short statement there that, that God who is omniscient outside of time is able to choose people he knows will make his son Lord before time begins. The one place in the Bible that Jesus is called Father is in Isaiah 9, 6. He is the everlasting Father because he's the Father of time. So it is Jesus who created time, space, and matter. And before that, God the Father is able to see all of time before it exists. And he is able to choose us in Christ. No person will find their way into heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. So through Christ, in Christ, is where he actually chooses us. So it is actually in his progression of choosing us, it is that I know you're going to make my son Lord. I know that you will be made into his image. I call you from in him. I choose you from in him. So Paul is going to explain today that when we hear the truth, we have faith. When we respond to the truth by making Christ Lord, we are placed in Christ, and from there the Father chooses us. We become his forever family members. So he is explaining that in verse 4. Um, in love he predestined us, verse 5, for the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. It gives the Father pleasure. It gives me pleasure to know that it gives the Father pleasure to take me from death to life by following his Son. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, capital O, Jesus, that he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to refer in this verse and in the, in the coming to know God, Jesus, before he is taken up to heaven, tells Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the rest, and he tells Paul privately, we'll see those verses today, he says that 
repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all the nations in his name. So he is saying here that if, if you repent, Paul would explain in all of his letters, then you'll have the sins of your life till that moment, the sins of your life in that moment, and the sins of your life beyond that moment have been taken care of. In Christ, redeemed, the forgiveness of sins. So we are foreknown, predestined, chosen, called, justified, and glorified when we respond to the truth of the gospel that we just sang about. Verse 7, in him we have the redemption through his blood, um, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. We're going to use those words in our study today. Wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will in accordance to his good pleasure, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. It is all found and only found in his Son, Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So we looked last week in Psalms 110 and verse 1 where David is prophesying this culmination, all things under Christ in perfect unity. And he says that David is listening to a, a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. He's listening through the Spirit and the Father says that um, the Lord says to my Lord, David says, um, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek in one place. And in another place he says, take, it, take your seat next to me on your throne, next to my throne, until all your enemies are put under your feet. So that was the plan before the creation of the world. That plan is realized in time that when Adam and Eve disobeyed, sin contaminated everything moving forward. So we read last week that Paul writes, just as through the disobedience of that one man, death came to all. So, through the obedience of the one man, Christ, life comes to all. And Paul is the explainer of the, the final revelation of God in the gospel, how we step into that life. God knows before we do that we will, and he is able to choose us. So, verse 11. In him we were, cho were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So Paul is explaining here, and he will explain more clearly in the verses to come, we is Jews. So Paul says in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Jews do not have first place in God's heart. They have an equal place in God's heart. But according to his plan, who works out everything for his pleasure and his will to reach as many people as he can possibly reach, he would go through a man who had enough faith to offer his own son named Abraham. 
So his descendants of Israel would be his chosen nation, most of them not believing, but they are his nation. The patriarchs come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the law comes through Moses through the Jews, and then the prophets who are all Jews bring God's message to earth, and the priests who are Jews bring defense of and, and payment for sin in its pictorial form to the temple. And Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews, John 4.22. So it is a plan that is all-inclusive. And in that all-inclusive plan, God the Father who sees Adam to the new heaven and the new earth knows that the best way to reach as many as possible, the way to reach every human being who is open to being reached, is to come through Abraham. And that's what he would do. And that's what he would choose. So the we there is the Jews. So Paul says in verse 11, in him we, Paul being a Jew, were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will. That entire statement is too big for us to understand, to reach billions of people over thousands of years. He would go through the Jews to reach as many as possible. And it was predetermined before he was chosen, 1 Peter 1.20, to be the sacrifice for sins before that, that he would go through Abraham. Israel was predestined. They, they chose, we're studying this um, on Wednesday nights, Paul talks about the remnant within Israel. Israel was chosen as a nation. The remnant were Israelites who chose to follow. So he has the same offer to them, but he chose a nation to bring that to the world. Verse 13, and you, so we'll see the word you multiple times in the next two verses. He's referring to Gentiles. He is the apostle, as we looked last week, to the Gentiles. He is writing to a place in modern-day Turkey that is a Gentile settlement, and it is in Ephesus. He says, in, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, faith comes, Romans 10, 17, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So he is writing to Gentiles. He explains first that in God's predestined plan, Israel would hear the gospel because it would come through Abraham. So there were people, Paul explains in Romans 5, before Abraham, before Moses, from Adam on, 2,000 years, people were believing in God. They were following him and trusting in him before there was even a written word through creation, through visions, through God reaching down to people intentionally. He, he would even come down and walk with people and talk with people on the earth before there was a written word. So Paul is writing to Gentiles. 
So when he gets to us, he explains extensively, you also were included in Christ, where we are chosen before the creation of the world. When you heard the gospel, the truth of salvation, having believed, and Paul explains something that the world needs to know, believe in your heart, Romans 10.9. What is the difference between believing and believing in your heart? Believing is, it's true, I've heard it, I intellectually understand it, I go to church, I go with people who also believe it's true. When you believe it in your heart, there is nothing you don't accept that comes with the message. So there were many people who came up to Jesus, we're ready to follow you now, wherever you're going, we're with you, okay? And he would give them, looking into their heart, knowing what they were still hanging on to, he would say, okay, let go of that and follow me. And they would hang their heads and they would walk away. We are the same today. So when we hear the truth, faith comes to us. We will see that in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. When we hear the message about Christ, Romans 10, 17, faith is ours. So we talked about this this morning. Faith is not saved. Faith is opportunity in its first form. It is God saying to you, if you will repent and follow my son, you will be mine forever. Faith. I haven't made a decision yet. I know what the decision is now. When we apply faith, Paul says, Romans 1.5, that he calls all Gentiles to obedience that comes through faith. So the gospel, the message of salvation, is to follow Christ in obedience. Hearing that brings faith. Choosing that means every blessing in the heavenly realms, which God has lavished on us in his perfect pleasure and will, which he has always planned to do. So turn to Acts chapter 26. So the message is always the same. Everywhere that Paul went, if you were here last week, we read extensively Paul meeting with the Ephesian elders for the last time, saying he would never meet with them again, about 57 A.D. This is about four years later that he is writing this letter. But he's thinking back, and he tells them in chapter 20 and verse 21 that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, he would say a few verses later, because I have not withheld any of the truth, any of the gospel, I've shared it all with you. And he tells them in verse 21 of chapter 20 that you must repent and you must turn to God and follow him. So right before he was in Ephesus that first time in chapter 18 of Acts, he was in Athens in chapter 17 across the water at Corinth, on his way to Corinth, and he says there, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Chapter 17 and verse 30, verse 31. For he has chosen the one who would judge the living and the dead. Judge you for what? Having repented or not having repented? So he, in Acts chapter 26, gives his testimony for the third time. 
as Jesus promised him that he would. So Jesus, in chapter 24 and verse 46 and 47 of Luke, tells Peter, Andrew, James, and John that repentance will be preached for the forgiveness of sins, beginning in Jerusalem to all the nations. So Paul is not on the scene there. So Jesus has to come to him directly. So in Acts chapter 26, in verse 14, we pick up this text where Paul is stopped on the road to Damascus. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, and that's unfamiliar language to 2023. What he is saying there is that Paul, you keep fighting what's right in front of you. You know the scriptures like maybe no one else under Gamaliel. You're reading what is true. Remember we read last week where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you keep holding on to the scriptures thinking that holding on to the scriptures will save you, and they're written about me. So he's saying to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the stones. You're fighting against the very words that you're reading. They're about me. They're about me, Paul. So then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And that's significant, that he's calling him Kyrios, asking his name. Who are you, sovereign one? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see from me. He's about to take him into the wilderness, Galatians 1, for three years to give him what we are reading in Ephesians 1. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you, that's apostello, I am apostolizing you right here to them to open their eyes, this is the gospel, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. So first, when Paul says, when you hear the gospel, the truth of salvation, having believed, he is explaining here from Jesus' lips. So this is a word-for-word quote of Jesus that what the gospel is, how sins are taken away. Well, I believe it's true. No, listen, you're, you're not hearing me. This is what needs to take place in a person's heart. He says, to turn them from darkness to light. Repent means turn. And from the power of Satan to God, so that they may, be, they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So he is taking, if you picture it as a person walking and they're walking alone, you need to turn. You need to turn to him. And if you do, you will be from darkness to light, from Satan to God, from sinful to purified. It's not, yes, I believe that it's true. It's so if I turn from everything to your son and I believe in him and I understand that my faith is here today, I can make the choice, 
I'm choosing to obey him, darkness to light, Satan to God, lost to found. The same thing that he explains in Luke chapter 15 when the prodigal son comes to his senses, goes back to his father. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but I will serve you if you will allow me. That's Jesus explaining repentance. So, verse 19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then, like Ephesus, to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So Paul is inspired here to say in plain language what Jesus said to him, repent, turn to God in repentance for the forgiveness of sins and then demonstrate that it happened. Demonstrating that it happened is the only way you can know you're going to heaven. We explained from 1 John 3 last week that it's impossible to have repented and not changed. He says in verse 6 of 1 John 3 that if you're still on the same path that you were before, you have neither seen him or known him. And then he says in verse 9 of 1 John 3, it's impossible because God has taken up residency in a person who has truly repented and if God lives there, change happens. So Paul is writing in Ephesians 1, if you've heard this, if you've believed it, then you've been placed in Christ with the Holy Spirit by the order of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit will seal you in Christ as the, the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So people will take verses and say that, you're, this means when you're water baptized, this is most religions, that a person is born again when water touches you. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, no, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is that when you hear the truth, you respond to the truth, you are placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, and he is not moving his hand. You are placed in him, you are there, you will always be there. The inheritance of Ephesians 1, every single blessing in the heavenly realms, redeemed, forgiven, blessed, everything is yours forever, and the Spirit is used to, to hold that in place. So Peter would say later that when we saw the story of Noah and the ark, which is a real-life story, understand that the water is death and hell. And the ark is Jesus Christ. So if you read the account, God the Father ordered them to go in Christ and then God sealed the door, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So it's a real story. It is real truth. It happened that way that eight people on earth ended up in the ark. And once they were in there, nobody could open the door but God. So Paul says in salvation, nobody could open the door but God, and God doesn't open it 
you are sealed as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. We get so hung up on the world in what does he want me to do? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to do what he says? And we lose sight of the fact that we go from darkness to light, from death to life, from Satan to God, sealed forever, inheritance guaranteed. We want it on our terms, it comes on his terms. Turn to Romans chapter 8. As he is explaining the, the work of the Spirit, the regenerative, the, the, the life-changing, the can't-be-the-same, the song and kids club, the things I used to say I don't say anymore, the things I used to do I don't do anymore. So Paul is explaining the work of the Holy Spirit in this chapter written a few years before Ephesians. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just what we read. If you are in Christ, that, that is unchangeable. You cannot fall out of Christ if you're in Christ. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, from sin and death to life and inheritance. So the, the law of the Father is that the Spirit of God will seal you in the one that you make Lord. So there's no condemnation there. There is nothing in me, by me, or about me that keeps me saved. So it is guaranteed by God. There's no condemnation by the power of God. The verses that Judy read last week, it's kept in heaven by God. So once we are in Christ, it is immovable. It is unchangeable. What we have to be sure of is that we're in Christ. Because everyone going to church in Mendota and Illinois and the United States and around the world believes we're all Christians. That's the important distinction. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's what John's talking about in 1 John 3. He's saying that, okay, if you're in Christ, it is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Titus 3, um, verse 5 and 6, that it is the Spirit who takes us from death to life. It is Christ that we choose, the Father that orchestrates, the Spirit who seals. And Paul is saying here, if you are sealed, there is no condemnation. It cannot happen. The Spirit cannot leave. He cannot back away. And Paul is saying that according to the Spirit, this is done. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance 
with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I, how do I experientially, how can I be more sure? Well, here's the first test. Is your mind set on doing what the Spirit says? So when you go to John 14, 15, and 16, what does the Spirit say? Jesus says he will only take the Word of God, his sword, his only weapon, and he will put it in front of you, and he will say, this is your order. Is your mind fixed on that? Is your, do you wake up in the morning thinking about what God desires for you to do? Are you struck by the fact that Paul com continually play, prays that we grow in the knowledge of God and you're fixed on growing in the knowledge of God? Or do you wake up thinking the same thing that the world thinks? What do I have to do today? Where do I have to go? I hope I don't have this today. Paul is saying the Spirit of God commands no condemnation. And then he starts saying how you can know if you have the Spirit. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We have religion trying to please God. We have people claiming to be saved, trying to please God. It's impossible. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone who do does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So he's saying two things. You're not in the realm of the flesh if you are fixed on what the Spirit is doing, if your desires are God's desires, if you want what God wants in every aspect of your life. Perfection, no. Authentic, yes. If you don't battle with Christ over the things that he wants you to do, Paul says you're in the realm of the Spirit if indeed the Spirit has authority in your life. That's how we can know, 1 John 4. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because, the, because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because, because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Paul is explaining, he, in Romans chapter 2, he explains this extensively. He says in Acts, we just read 26 and verse 20, that you must demonstrate your repentance. I repented. I'm sure I'm going to heaven because I know what happened there. Paul says, don't focus on what happened there. Focus on what's happening. In other words, it's not about an event 
though the event must take place. It is about a surrender that however long ago that was, whatever day this is, I live by the Spirit. I do what he says. I follow Christ. Don't tell people you're saved because of what happened at an event. That's when you were saved. Tell people you're saved by the choices you're making today. And Paul is explaining that to us. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That's how Paul says, verse 14, you can know you're saved. Not by the right prayer, not by the right event, but you're being led by the Holy Spirit to do what? To obey Christ. That's how you can know. Verse 15, the Spirit you receive does not make you, make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Perfect love drives out fear. John's explaining the same thing, 1 John 4. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How does he do that? We do what he says. Verse 17, now if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If you're living a sacrificial life for Christ now, you will share in his glory in the future. Paul is explaining in this verse how to know that we are born again. Turn back to Ephesians 1. As we read on, Paul is excited, as we should be, about the first 14 verses and the reality of making Christ Lord and God's pleasure is satisfied by giving us everything he can give us. So he, he breaks into prayer now in verse 15. For this reason, what we've been reading about, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So what is he hearing about so far away? We're talking about 1,300 miles on a straight line, but between these two places is a sea and a Greece and another sea and then Rome. He is so far away and he's hearing. He has people going back and forth, but what he's hearing is what they're doing and why they're doing it. So when you hear about someone's love for Christ, Paul says you're, what you're hearing about is their love for all God's people. So make the most of every opportunity, Galatians 6, 9, and 10, especially among the family of believers, because we love them more and the, and the lost less. No, because he will explain in chapter 3 and chapter 4, loving each other, doing for each other, helping each other is what prepares us to be like Christ and go out there. So he is explaining in Ephesians, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers because I keep hearing that, that your love for all God's people continues to grow. So he went there in about 53 AD and wasn't sure that this was a place the gospel was going to go. So he says, well, if, if, if it's God's will, I'll come back. He comes back and he's there three years, three difficult years. 
years of hardship and attack and spiritual warfare and planting a church. And then he leaves there and not long after he's in Rome in prison and he says, I am so excited about what God is doing in Ephesus while I'm in prison. You people are doing what God has called you to do. The evidence of your faithfulness to do what he's telling you to do has made it to Rome. People in Rome are talking about Ephesus. So four years after Paul has last seen anyone from Ephesus, Paul is saying there are great things happening there. You are a testimony to the world that if you live by the Spirit of God, the power of God is with you. And I'm hearing about it. And you have there in your notes um, from 95 A.D., a generation later, Jesus speaks to this same church, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first, the love he's writing about in Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So in 57 A.D., probably more like 53 A.D., when the, the first souls were saved in Ephesus, a lampstand is put there, which is a marker metaphorically that says Christ is in this church. And Christ is the love of that church. He's the Lord of that church. He's the reason for that church. He's the reason why Paul is hearing that the love for God's people has gone out to the world from Ephesus. John writes, 32 years later, that love is drifting away. You're doing to do, you're going to go, but your reason is leaving. And Jesus, not John, says to Ephesus, I'm about to take my lampstand back. You better repent. So the next generation, and we see it in our lives as, as probably more than they did there, but the next generation, no one is a grandchild in heaven. No one is a child of someone else in heaven. They are either a Christ follower or they won't be in heaven. So what has happened in Ephesus is very common. That the people that were reached when Paul was there were on fire for God and their kids are less on fire. They're still going to church. They probably, a few generations later, would be give the same answer that most kids would give today. Why do you go to church? My parents make me. And if it stays there, that church will die. What needs to happen is, at a young age, it becomes their church, their Lord, their master. And if that happens, then the Spirit of God brings power and manifestation through that person that gives them a direct line to God, not a story from their parents. And that church in Ephesus is dying in Revelation chapter 2. Reading on verse 17, Paul says, here's what I'm praying. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
so that you may know him better. This is way more intimate in the Greek than it is in the English. I want us to turn to 2 Peter 2 to come alongside what Paul is teaching. Second Peter two, verse three. Peter is explaining the same thing that Paul is explaining in Romans eight, and the same thing that he's explaining in Ephesians one. He's talking about the power of God on earth. The power of God on earth is in people who are in Christ. So verse three, his divine power, this is that dynamis Greek word all through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which is the power of the Holy Spirit that, it, that comes to us when we know Christ. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So Peter and Paul are trying to explain something that's that's difficult in English to fully grasp. So Peter's going to explain it as we read on, but the first thing we want to acknowledge here is what it's saying in the Greek. So the word knowledge in verse 3 is epignosis. Um, English translation, knowledge. So then um, later in verse 5, he's going to give us the word gnosis. English word, knowledge. Verse 8, epignosis, knowledge, but they don't mean the same thing. Knowledge is information that we can gain that will change us. So, so gnosis is knowledge, which means science, which means knowing. Epignosis is this intimate, fully experienced, participated in changing knowledge. So he's talking about this divine power that if activated is epignosis. I am experiencing what he's saying. I'm not just hearing it. I'm not just studying it. I'm doing it epignosis. It is this intimate, full, experiential knowledge of the power of the word of God. So he says that in verse 3, verse 4. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate. This isn't a book that we agree on. It's calling for epignosis. It's calling for us to participate in the divine nature if we just understand, if we just take Peter trying to explain to us that epignosis is that you walk in the shoes of Jesus Christ, so to speak. You do what he does and you follow what he says and power that is divine is personally experienced. So it's, it's knowledge that is amazing that resurrection power lives in us but it's not close to as amazing as experiencing it. It's not complicated. I take a command from Christ and I do it. Epignosis. Participation 
in a divine nature. It's something that is hard to find visible today. So he says, participate in a divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by the evil desires. You don't escape the world by putting up a sign that says, don't touch. You escape the world by doing what Christ says. He literally delivers you. So, so Jesus says to those who believe in him in John chapter 8, he says, if you hold to my teaching, then you'll truly be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You're not free by knowing what these words are. You're not free by believing that these words are true. You're not even free as a Christian until you're participating in the divine nature. And that's not mystical and, and mysterious. That's doing what he says. And when you do what he says, you have epignosis knowledge. It works. So do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, metamorphed. A metamorphosis happens when we take this, we do what it says, and metamorphosis, the renewing of my mind, then I will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So he's, we've read that a few times today. We understand God's plan when we participate in it. Not when we hear about it, Reading on, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith what you've heard, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, that's gnosis there, know what this book says, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. So Paul is saying, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers because of, of your love for all God's people. That's the pinnacle. So when we read in Galatians chapter 5 that um, the, the fruit from the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, Paul gives us there love. It's all of them. It encapsulates all of them. If, if you're everything but patient, you're not loving. If you're patient, it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are. It's not in you otherwise. But if you're participating, Peter says, add them all, keep adding them all, keep adding them all, and it becomes love. And Paul says, in my prison cell in Rome, I'm going before God and I'm ecstatic because you're loving people. That's the finished work of God, is human beings, loving human beings, in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge, epignosis, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this intimacy with God, that you're experiencing a divine nature. If you are not experiencing that, you will become ineffective and unproductive. If you are experiencing them, the things that you struggle to do will be done by the power of God. 
turn back to Ephesians 1. So Jesus says in John 17, 17, that we would be sanctified by the word of God. Paul talks about that in your notes there um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 and another one of his many prayers. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So he's saying the same thing there. It starts with my spirit. We read in, I think, verse 17 of Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit and my spirit come together to say, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, 1 Corinthians 2, is the one who divinely puts God's word into effect in my life, teaches me what it means, walks with me how it how to walk, all of the things that Peter said to add, all of the things in Galatians 5, it is the Holy Spirit who will apply them with the sword of the Spirit to my life. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's saying spirit, soul, body. So when my spirit is aligned with his spirit, then the word of God is filling me. And that if you think of it as a cable connected to the Holy Spirit, connected to Christ and the Father through the Holy Spirit to my spirit, nothing else can come in. It's the only station I can get. When, when I have part of the Spirit and part of me, I actually have none of the Spirit. So Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be full of the Holy Spirit. So when it says in the book of Acts, Peter was full of the Holy Spirit or Paul is full of the Holy Spirit. It means that their spirit is connected to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and nothing else can enter. So that's why John says that when that happens, it is impossible for us to be who we normally are. When we are connected to the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, transformation is happening. Manifestation is happening. Change from who I was to who I am becoming, is happening. So when my spirit is feeding correctly, my soul is being fed. My heart is my soul. Believe in your heart. Listen to God is believing in your heart. And then may your whole body, may your feet move, your hands reach out. May they love, maybe they help, maybe they lead. Whatever I'm calling you to do from my spirit, to my soul, if my soul has the right food, my feet and my hands will do the right things. So Paul is explaining those things to us, reading on um, verse 18 there to go with that. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It's in the body, will be continuously taught in Ephesians um, that it all happens in the body of Christ, which is believers, um, loving believers. Verse 19, and his incomparably great power, dynamis, 
for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So it seems too big for us, our brains, to realize that all of that power is in Christ. All grace, all truth, all authority, all power is in Christ. That's big. But what Paul is saying to us here is that that power is in you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So Peter and Paul together are telling us that when we tap into that power, this world has been put in its place. The the satanic world has been put in its place. Every authority, every ruler, Joe Biden or, or the dictator in China or whoever you are, if you think that you have power over Christ, you are mistaken. And as the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Nebuchadnezzar, you might throw us in there, and you might burn us, but you don't have power over him. And him went in the fire with them. And they all came out together, unburned. So Paul is trying to explain resurrection power to us. Turn to Romans chapter 6. It doesn't seem like it from a human understanding, but if we go home and we tap into this power by reading God's word, and especially Paul's letter, which are written to us, just take one chapter, just apply one verse, and then one paragraph, and one chapter, and just do what it says, and that power becomes evident. Paul would explain that power wasn't of him, but it was in him by the grace of God. So in chapter 6, he's explaining this resurrection reality and the power of Christ in us. Verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, how do we do that? We repent. We've already read that today. Then we will certainly, we've already read that today, be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That's repentance. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that when we repent. Verse 9. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Listen to these words closely because we're going to do an important segue. Verse 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's our segue. In the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. We read that in Paul's call in Acts 26. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul is saying, in the same way as Christ, he died to sin once and for all. You have also. If, Romans 8, the Spirit of God does live in you, if he lives in you, then you died to sin. How can you continue to do it if you have died to it? So, perfection, no, but listen to what Paul says. Offer every part of you to Christ in obedience. Offer no part of you to self or the world. That's an authentic, you are Lord. I will be perfect one day and I will be obedient until then. I will offer on this living sacrifice altar all of me. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, Paul would write. How do I worship God? All of me for you. Paul says if you do that, then you will know constantly that you are closer to heaven, closer to heaven, closer to heaven. Turn back to Ephesians 1. It is our fallen human nature to think, if I give him that much room, I don't know if I will enjoy life. The reality is that Paul says in Romans 12 too, if you give him that much room, you will for the first time know what life is. You will be set free from the things that trouble you. And there is nothing like that on earth outside of following Christ. Reading on verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Again, Ephesians is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's who our Lord is. Turn to Colossians 1. Familiar verses, and as I said, he is... I've given a challenge to a couple people. You can accept the challenge too. If you, if you haven't studied the Bible, if you want to learn how to study it, um, I would be, be glad to help. Um, but it would be a great place to dive into Colossians and study this book while we are studying Ephesians and you will see how much they bring to each other. Um, one, the body of Christ and one, the, the headship of Christ. So in the headship of Christ, we read in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. What does he tell Philip? Philip says, can we see the Father? Jesus, to paraphrase, says, you're looking at him. He's exactly like me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So, as imperfect beings, he's asking for supremacy to me. He's saying, can I be that to you? I am that to Satan and the demons, to heaven and earth, to the presidents and the kings and the people who think they have power, creation itself, a raindrop doesn't fall unless I say so, a storm doesn't happen unless I say so. Um, I am control over everything, and I'm the head of the church. Join me, Jesus is saying, and you will know resurrection power before you resurrect because that power lives in you, because I say so, because my Father ordered me so, and because the Holy Spirit guarantees it. So the power of God to earth, um, it was visible wherever Paul went. It should be more visible than it is today. It is humbling and difficult to believe, but he wants to demonstrate it through us. And he wants to demonstrate it in a body, as he will explain in chapter 4. He wants to show the world what a church looks like where his son is Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his patience and your patience with us. Help me to step into more of what you are instructing me to do. And help us to do that together as a church so that the manifold wisdom of God, as we read last week, can be made known to all of the powers of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen.